Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. As strategic competition between the U.S. and China heats up, old Cold War era questions on the importance of values are being asked anew. To what extent does ideology, democracy in particular, factor into U.S. foreign policy in Asia? Mike is joined by Ambassador Derek Mitchell of the National Democratic Institute and Dr. Dan Twining of the International Republican Institute to dive into the past, present, and future roles of democracy support in U.S.-Asia policy. The three begin by discussing the cliched idea that the U.S. must always choose between promotion of its values and defense of its hard interests. Mike, Derek, and Dan then turn to how the U.S. should approach Asian allies whose democratic institutions are under attack domestically and from abroad. The trio conclude the discussion by examining how the U.S. might encourage its democratic allies in Asia to see how support for democratic governance benefits their own security concerns. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I am in uh, Sunnylands, California, the Annenberg Estate, uh, the site of President Barack Obama's 2012 summit with Chinese leader Xi Jinping and with the 10 ASEAN leaders. And I'm out here uh, with a group of leading thinkers on democracy and foreign policy strategy from across Asia and leading thinkers from the United States, including two of my soulmates, trench mates in this business, Derek Mitchell, uh, who heads the National Democratic Institute, NDI, Dan Twining, who heads the International Republican Institute. These are uh, foreign policy thinkers who have worked in the Pentagon, in the State Department, and think about their jobs now leading America's two most important uh, democracy support organizations in that context of grand strategy, which we'll get into. I've written with each of them on this subject, and it's really uh, wonderful to have everyone together. Welcome, guys. Thank you. It's great to be here, Mike. You guys both played golf today. How'd it go? Our listening audience wants to know. I've got a heating pack in my back, but otherwise, you know, it turns out I'm better at riding a bicycle. Good. Uh, yesterday, Dan and I caught four catfish. Yes. They were, you know, at least what, four or five feet? They were edible. And, and, and on radio, no one can see you lie. So um, let's start, as we always do, um, with a bit of your background. We'll start with Dan. How did you get into the foreign policy Asia democracy business? So I grew up overseas as the son of a diplomat. And one thing I noticed in very poor countries that they were often dictatorships. They were poor, not simply because they were condemned by poor resources or poor geography. They were poor because they had leaders who stole from the public trust. And there was a political model that actually was about kind of racketeering and controlling public rents. I then uh, came of age working for Senator John McCain. You know, he was a great national security thinker, had been a career Navy man, but he understood that the truest form of realism in American leadership had to invoke values and that America could not be safe in a world of autocracies, that actually the safety and security of our own democracy hinges on the quality of democracy out in the world. And your dad was a storied Asia hand in the State Department. He was ambassador in Cambodia, yes, among other posts. Derek? Well, I... Uh... I mean, inclination for human rights um, through my life, but I worked for Senator Ted Kennedy, who also was quite interested in human rights and democracy. I worked for him in the 80s and found myself, I went overseas before grad school, I went to Taiwan during a really formative period in 1989 when they were undergoing by week a, a democratic transition. And then in May of 89, traveled with my brother through Beijing, China, the week of the, the Tiananmen Square demonstrations below, um, you know, with actually a million people in the streets and such. So that combination made me really recognize the differences between Taiwan and China, the value of, 
of democracy and then ended up working for NDI uh, in the mid-90s and uh, found myself after NDI in the Pentagon and saw, again, like Dan suggested, a real connection between our national security and our values. It's something that's always been sort of heartfelt for me, mm-hmm. but it connects everything. I think it's integrated to everything that I've done in, in U.S. foreign policy work. We'll come back to what NDI and IRI do operationally, but let's set the strategic stage first. We've written on this and we have very similar views in a way. And in the Congress, in the think tank world, Asia policy is probably the most bipartisan area. And within that, I I think probably uh, this issue of democracy is probably the most bipartisan subject. So there's a a bit of a mind melt today, I, I think. But let's put it on the table and start with you, Derek. How do you think about democracy in terms of American interests? You know, is there a difference between real politic or real interests and our values. I've never seen that. I never understood why there was a dichotomy between realist and idealist or that somehow values were just in an idealist camp. It's very practical. First of all, if you're interested in American foreign policy, this is our comparative advantage. It's part of who we are. It's it's what separates us from, from other powers traditionally. It gives us an advantage strategically when we deal with other countries. We actually care about the well-being of others. And there's always been the sense that if others are doing well, and if they are stable, that creates a more stable world, it creates better markets, uh, and we don't have to be sending in the military to solve problems, they can solve their own problems internally. So uh, what's interesting though, is in the 90s, when you talk about this issue of Asia and values, I mean, when I was forming all this, there was that dichotomy in Asia, of Asian values versus Western values. And what we've seen, even though people will talk about a crisis in democracy today in Asia and elsewhere, you know, we've seen over the past two decades, that Asians value having a voice, they value these rights. So uh, the more I I engaged, the more I saw that this was something that Asian peoples wanted, even if Asian Asian governments did not necessarily see that is in their interest. You spent time on the ground in Burma? Well, you're ambassador later, yeah, but you started with NDI. Fell in love with the place in the 90s. Yeah, fascinating country. Dan? So more people today live under democracy in Asia than in any other region of the world including North America and Europe combined. There is a campaign out there run out of Beijing to convince other Asians and the world that China somehow, authoritarian communist China, somehow represents Asia politically. Uh, That it's not only the most powerful actor in Asia proper, but that sort of Confucian, hierarchical, authoritarian, Leninist values are somehow better off for Asians than for others. And you only have to go to Indonesia or Malaysia or India or Japan or Korea or Taiwan or five other countries to realize that this is just not true. So Asian is not a Western value, it's a universal value. We know that democracies in Asia as elsewhere produce peace and security. Think about the difference between North Korea and South Korea. North Korea develops some of the world's worst weapons, threatens its neighbors, produces refugees who flee desperately to the South and to other countries. Uh, South Korea is a great source of regional security and stability. Think about the Rohingya refugee crisis in Burma, in Myanmar, uh, produced by a system where uh, the military still has a lot of control in politics. Asians want democracy. They want the same dignity and accountability that other people do. But as Americans, we should also appreciate that actually a, an Asia that is more democratic is actually a more peaceful and orderly and more prosperous region. So the surveys we've done of um, thought leaders in Asia from CSIS, starting in around 2010, every couple of years, has shown uh, outside of China, and to some extent Singapore, a steady increase in the value that thought leaders in uh, Thailand, Japan, 
Indonesia, place India, place on good governance, free and fair elections, women's empowerment, human rights. It's been going up. There is no Beijing consensus about authoritarianism. But what really has struck us and bothered us is when we do these questions to American foreign policy elites, the value they place on democracy has steadily gone down, particularly after the financial crisis. Iraq was probably a factor. It seems like we don't get it. You guys talk to members of Congress. You have to brief them. You, you get you know, budget and funding. And is there some hope that the American body politic gets it? I saw Joe Biden's new foreign policy manifesto is centered on democracy. Is that maybe something that's a new thing? How's the state of the debate in the US? So funnily enough, I think the American people and the American Congress writ large are way ahead of many foreign policy elites in understanding that the way America defines our interests in Asia and the world is a function of who we are as a people. And that just as we had support in building our own democracy once upon a time in 1776, that you know we have an obligation to help others do the same. Uh, which is not an imposition, which is in response to uh, requests for assistance and support. In addition to uh, really strong, strong bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress and even from important people in the U.S. administration, I'd like to turn your argument on its head and actually highlight the fact that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party also cares quite deeply about democracy. If you look at a number of their internal party documents, including some which have leaked, as well as Xi's uh, successive speeches to CCP cadres, he makes a very central argument that China can never allow democratic values of accountability, transparency, human rights to somehow infiltrate Chinese society. And it's quite interesting to ask, why does the Leninist autocratic leader of China care so much about democracy? And why don't more American foreign policy elites? You know, we should read the other guy's playbook to know our strengths. And there are over 100 professors in uh, Chinese universities who have been fired for the um, violation of either criticizing Xi Jinping thought or teaching universal values. So, you know, there's a real insecurity there. But let's come back to China in a minute. But, but Derek, from the NDI side, how do you see the state of the, you know, American uh, foreign policy elite's view of this? Well, I mean, foreign policy elite, I think sometimes, if I may say, are quite naive. Or they feel that superior, they have to be sort of hard, realist thinkers if, to be taken seriously in Washington. And they think, again, that this stuff, well, this is soft stuff. This is stuff that's nice, but it's actually not strategic. And I, I, you know, I think we struggle with this. I've struggled with this, you know, for for many years to get people to recognize that this is a strategic component of American foreign policy and of international stability and security. But you look at the American people. I mean, the Penn Biden Center and the McCain Institute, they did a study together. More than 70 percent of the American people said we support a foreign policy that includes democracy support, democracy promotion. Uh, we go up to the Hill, we talk to folks up there, a vast majority. They, there's nobody who says we don't believe this is an important component of foreign policy. So the elites, it could be a reaction again to assuming that the work that we do, democracy support, is somehow aggressive or it's maybe like Iraq right. and, you know, or something aggressive and, and, and ugly or whatever. You know. So they're responding to something that we're not and something that they opposed in the past, not actually what it is. And that overreach and that misunderstanding, I think, is something we have to fight back against because instinctively uh, the American people get it. Yeah, often as a policy, democracy promotion, I think you both prefer democracy support. Yeah. It, it gets cast or stereotyped or put as, you know, you often hear like, we can't democratize countries by attacking them. We've never gone to war for democracy. We've ended wars by supporting democracy. We've never gone into war. Or, or this idea that for it's, democracy. it's simply American. What we're doing is imposing that on others. We're right. pushing it on others. And in fact, what we do, certainly, you can't 
I mean, Madeleine Albright, who's chair of NDI, says uh, imposing democracy is an oxymoron. I mean, you can't impose right, right. it. It has to be from ground up, from you know, grassroots. So uh, what we do is we, there are people out there everywhere, Asia, Latin America, Africa, Europe, Middle East, everywhere. And we can see it on the streets now in the past year, all these people taking to the streets who are saying for various reasons, we don't like corruption. We don't like the quality of governance. We want a voice. We want accountability of our leaders. We want to have a say uh, on a regular basis on how these people who represent us do their jobs. That, in essence, is democracy. And what we do is we give them you know, experiences. We don't go and say, you must be like America. We bring people from other countries, from Albania or Kosovo or whatever, to share those experiences with others, to show support and help them develop the tools by which they can own their own political system. So the misunderstanding of how this work is done, I think, is a critical component as to why many American American elites who think they know better, who I know what they're doing, they're pushing this aggressively, they actually don't know. And I think they need to learn. You know, in my, um, by more than providence, my history of U.S. foreign policy strategy in Asia, it became pretty clear uh, as I was doing the research that this was a core principle and a success of U.S. grand strategy in Asia over 200 years. Thomas Jefferson, thinking about the Pacific Northwest, Commodore Perry thinking about uh, the future of an American presence in the Western Pacific. They didn't want colonies because we were a post-colonial uh, republic, but they wanted to stop other imperial powers from filling in the vacuum that was being created as the Qing Empire collapsed. And then over the course of our history, the Japanese Empire, the British Empire, Asia is actually the graveyard of empires. And our foreign policy strategy has been successful for the most part in preventing other empires from filling in and taking over those vacuums. Thomas and Jefferson, Commodore Perry, Alfred Thayer Mahan, who some people think of as the ultimate realist, they all argued that in Asia and the Pacific, in the Pacific Northwest in the 18th century, self-governing republics were going to be more resilient and more resistant to imperial expansion. Now, to be fair, they thought of these self-governing republics as run by white men, or maybe Japanese men. Right. So it was a different time, a different context. But that fundamental idea that we have a more stable Asia, uh, and Pacific, that's not falling under hostile hegemonic powers, that's more likely to be an, open to our trade. Uh, it, it's, it's an enduring truth. But now we've got a hegemonic power that is within Asia, <laughs> aspiring to uh, lead the region, China. And you raised China earlier, Dan. How do we construct a strategy to be supporting democracy when the other side, as one prominent uh, US official said, is playing tackle football and we're playing touch football? The Chinese are using a lot of tools to prevent us from preventing them from becoming hegemonic power. And the nature of how states organize corruption, transparency, that, that's a battleground. So how do we support without looking like we're containing or, or going to war? So everyone listening to this really should read your book. Uh, Thank you. Because uh, <laughs> these things are not some new trend. It's not as if this debate began a couple years ago. This has always been a debate in American foreign policy we have lost sight of a core truth, which is that free people and free markets go together. We understood this once upon a time. China has muddied the waters by running a developmental superstate that has grown at extraordinary rates for 30 years without the kind of political opening that we saw in South Korea, in Taiwan, in other countries. That may not last forever. The Chinese economy has a lot of problems. China's response to the current uh, viral epidemic does not lend a lot of confidence in a top-down autocratic model where citizens do not communicate through institutions with their government. But on China, we should uh, note that not only is the Chinese Communist Party highly defensive about any form of universal values inside mainland China, 
Uh, they are also running a systematic campaign to weaken and assault and subvert democratic practice beyond their borders, from uh, Cambodia to Australia to countries in Africa and Latin America. It's not limited to China's immediate hinterland. And we should ask why this is. And we should recall uh, the way, for instance, in another time, in a totally different context, the Japanese Empire, uh, wanted to construct essentially a greater Cocos prosperity sphere in Asia that it would sit atop as the dominant actor. We're not quite sure where China is going, but in fact, our continued commitment to free people and free markets is, I would argue, strategically perhaps the most important thing we can do to make sure that Asia remains pluralistic and does not become Sinocentric, with China sitting atop the hierarchy that Japan once wanted to build 100 years ago. I mean, the Chinese narrative now under Xi Jinping talks about Asians common destiny, Asians should decide Asian security, and uh, in the UN and other venues, Chinese diplomats are arguing that there need to be exceptions for different cultures with respect to human rights and democracy. So, Derek, are we in a, an ideological core war with the Chinese? Because if we are, that's pretty tough, because most of the countries in the middle, particularly Southeast Asia, you know, as Henry Kissinger famously said, they don't want to have to choose. So how do we play this? Well, I say, you know, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And what we're seeing today is echoes of, of Cold War type of, whether it's ideological, ideational, or terminology, just as a competitive um, nature now to the norms and values that, are, that run the international system. It's the first time in 30 years that we've had this competition with a country that has enormous resources and willing to use them to shape the world more according to their values and interests against those that we have promoted for so long. So yes, we have to recognize, I think the first step is recognize there is a competition going on and that China is out there trying to shape things. And I think we, we have to be careful though, exactly what you're saying, is not make it particularly about China, about what China is doing, what China represents, the norms and values that they are promoting and bringing. Uh, these countries themselves are pretty smart. They have, but what we wanna do is underwrite their own sovereignty, their ability to push back in their own system their ability to detect what China is doing, to recognize what China is doing, and be careful as we deal with it that we don't instrumentalize, we don't make a uh, weaponize these values so that becomes a US-China thing, who actually care about these countries for their own sake, that they themselves have the ability to have a say in their own affairs. Just what China is doing is trying to prevent the information from, from getting to people, creating some lack of accountability so corruption can reign and Chinese contracts and Chinese uh, development assistance can, can flow. So we need to be very, very smart about this so that we are not putting countries in the middle of a U.S.-China uh, competition, but frankly, empower them, these countries themselves to push back. So a number of leading democracy scholars, especially issue recently of the Journal of Democracy, um, argue that we reached peak democratization in around 2005 or six, and especially since the financial crisis in 2008, there's more backsliding than progress. And that's true in Asia too, I think. You look at territory in the Philippines, you look at the uh, ASEAN focus. You know, ASEAN uh, in the early 2000s created a human rights council. They created a new charter. It has not moved forward, it's moved backwards. I don't want to say are we winning or are we losing, but in the battleground of ideas, and in the actual governance and democracy within Asia, is there room for hope or should we be worried? So we see uh, a lot of people voting with their feet for greater openness and accountability, including inside China, in places like Hong Kong, in places where this struggle is really tough and really personally dangerous, right? One of the theories of China's leadership was that they would deliver broad-based prosperity 
uh, help make their people rich. And in return, their people would not want the same deal that people in the West and in Japan and South Korea and other countries wanted, which is political reform to accompany economic reform. That a, an emergent middle class produced by economic prosperity would surrender political freedoms to enjoy continued prosperity. Hong Kongers are the richest Chinese by a factor of four or five. And they are the ones who are most adamant right now that they deserve some basic dignity and some basic rights. This is actually a strategic problem for China. Uh, democracy is not in great shape from Bangladesh to the Philippines. But I would not overinterpret that as somehow people want authoritarianism. They don't want kleptocratic corrupt governments that abuse their basic rights. I think we should separate out the idea that China somehow is successfully projecting its model. Nobody wants a Chinese model in Asia, in fact, least of all the people closest to it in Hong Kong and Taiwan, who know China best. And uh, we should take heart from the fact that democracy is a continuing struggle and process. It's never done. The work of democracy is never done. That's right. I mean, look, democracy is very hard. And this is one generation of folks who are, who are struggling with this. In, uh, in Asia. In Asia. Yeah. Well, and here. <laughs> yes, with many generations in the United States. And it is never done. It could always roll back. And it's always subject to demagogues or those who say, I alone can fix this. And the problems you face are easy. And just give me the power and I'll do it. Particularly if you know if you don't have a job or you're, there's a lack of security, people play on fear. I mean, there's, there's an easy playbook for demagogues. But um, you know, in, in, in Asia, um, I think you have to recognize that people are um, struggling with lack of good governance or with demagogues who are trying to game the system. And this is a continuum. If you take a snapshot today, you say things are not good. If you took a snapshot 10 years ago, you say things are good. It's, it's going to go forward and back. Uh, and what we need to do is stay firm and stay uh, true to the recognition that a more democratic society on a journey is going to be more stable and better for U.S. interests and better for our, the interests of our allies than any other system as stable as it might seem uh, in the immediate term. So what do you do about a Duterte or an Aung San Suu Kyi? The Philippines an ally, Myanmar, a country of over 50 million that's at a critical strategic crossroads. You don't want to just cut them off, but you don't like the trends in governance and democracy. How do you maintain engagement, but keep on uh, some pressure expectations for reform opening and essentially um, casting a light so that Chinese interference, uh, essentially the Chinese strategy depends on darkness. So how do you do that? I mean, there are a lot of people in the Pentagon who would say, you got to talk to them, just don't punish them. There are a lot of people in the Congress who would say, Global Magnitsky Act, punish yeah. the leadership. Where do you come down on that? Well, it is case by case. And, and there are cases where you have to demonstrate, because American values, human rights, you have to um, demonstrate that it matters. It can't be business as usual when there is vast atrocities or violations of the values of openness and fairness and justice in the country. But we do have to stay engaged. Uh, we do have to recognize um, that these things can swing back and forth. Uh, we should be supporting those within these societies, these countries that seek a more openness and more transparency and accountability in the government. But, uh, you know, in a place like Burma, it's hard. You have two competing different streams. One is the vast human rights tragedy, the crime against humanity against the Rohingya. Of course, the human rights abuses against various ethnic minorities that have been going on for a long time. At the same time, they're struggling with their democratic path of, of how do they form, have a democratic system with political parties and civil society. So you have to walk and shoot them at the same time and not simply wag your finger at the entire country and leave them to their own devices, but stay engaged and show that the values matter, but we also are with you in this, in this journey. 
Mike, I would just like to add, uh, you know, we've talked about this at this excellent Sunnylands retreat, that NDI and IRI both spend a lot of time working with young people, young political leaders, young civil society activists. They often have a very different view of their own leadership, even within the same political party, and of their country's future. Uh, Americans are used to instant results, and we're impatient, and actually that's a fine quality. Uh, but in fact, in some of these cases, we're just going to need to be a little patient. In some of these cases, I would argue that includes uh, Myanmar, Burma, that includes uh, the Philippines. A rising generation is going to want something different from what they currently are getting out of their politics. And we may not see the results in two or three or five or six months, but 10 years from now, we'll be sitting around having this conversation, and I guarantee you that these young people will be having serious impact and making a difference in their country's political life. Uh, because young people around the world, they're digitally empowered, they're savvy, they don't want to live under these old strong men and strong women. They do want something different and much more accountable and democratic and representative. Some of the most important countries in Asia geopolitically that we don't think about a lot in Washington, Vietnam, Bangladesh, India, are very young. Cambodia are very young countries. You know, it's worth remembering uh, SBY, Susila Bambang Yodiono, president of Indonesia, perhaps the most reform-oriented president of that country, went to U.S. Army Command and Staff College as a young captain, I think, and learned about reform and reformed the TNI, the Indonesian military. Then he became the president of the country. And so that was an investment we made 20 years, 30 years before he became president, probably. Also, you know, what NDI and IRI do to a degree for 30 years or more, we've been working on democratic institutions, democratic processes, you know, and what I found is that's all extremely important. People get used to it. But the democratic culture of a country or the culture, what people's instincts or what need to be developed. And that, I think if you're working with older folks, if I may say, mm -hmm. I mean, you're gonna get them to change the- You're talking about Dan, right? Yeah, I'm not looking at you, Mike. I would never look at you. But I mean, it's easy to change the rules of the game, but typically if you have the same old folks with new rules, they're gonna game the system to get the old results. And you get a new environment over time. That culture takes, takes a little bit more effort and it means investing in the youth. Uh, and it means dealing with things, as, as Dan said, like, like technologies that are now headwinds to the ability for democracy to, to really succeed. One of the things we're doing here in Sunnylands with thought leaders, former uh, Supreme Court justices, foreign ministers uh, from places like uh, the Philippines and Indonesia and Japan and Korea is, of course, hearing their, their views on this in a philosophical and policy and strategic way, but also hearing a really fascinating inventory of all the things these countries are doing in their own way to advance what we would broadly define as good governance and democracy. And that at the same time, they're not entirely comfortable, none of them, not even Japan, not even Australia, is entirely comfortable with the way the US debates this, but they are doing a lot of stuff. We're only halfway through the conference, but how can we, I was gonna say harness that, but it's not gonna work if we harness it. It has to be not part of the American toolkit, we want everyone to have a toolkit. So how do we take advantage of the fact that there's more happening? I've, we heard some fascinating things, for example, about what India's doing or Indonesia. And it's not the way we would do it necessarily. Right, but look, uh, India is going through some domestic turbulence and some troubles, but taking the long view, India, frankly, is a much more identifiable model for developing countries in Africa than China now is, which is so far ahead, or than the United States is, which has been working uh, on its democracy for 200 plus years and is one of the richest countries in the world. So Indonesia, I would argue, is another example. Again, you know, some current troubles but that neighbors can look to. The transition in Malaysia, which had one-party rule for all of its independent existence for over six decades, and then people got really fed up with corruption. 
and voted for change, I think inspires people beyond Asia to say, gosh, even, even we could do this if they did this. This goes back to this point about, you know, a more multipolar world, a world where power is much more diffused. It's not as if all power has shifted from America to China. In fact, power has diffused, and there are different kinds of power, including significantly in the emerging world. But people are looking for a ticket to prosperity, for better lives, for opportunity. People are not flocking to China to get these things, right? The immigrants who are leaving their poor, embattled countries and moving to find economic opportunity are not moving to China. They are moving into not just the U.S. and Europe, but they are coming to rising democracies that offer them something a little better. I mean, it comes down to a very practical, basic issue here. How can countries help other countries retain sovereignty and retain control of their own affairs? And who will be the ones who uh, drive the governance in a country? And you know, if Japan sees it in their interest that um, other countries are more stable through um, participatory governance, more transparency, anti-corruption, they have a lot of tools and they can they understand how to talk about this, how to engage their neighbors in a way maybe Americans are a little bit too heavy handed on sometimes. Certainly not NDI and I, right? But it has governments and others who understand the context and understand how to deal with uh, with them individually. I think they each have to come to this independently. And I've I've yet to see, unfortunately, even with all the discussions, that any of these countries have really taken this on as important to their own national security. A lot of them are struggling with their own uh, challenges. But I don't think the fact that um, a lot of people would argue Moon Jae-in is a more authoritarian leader in Korea than we've had in a while, or Duterte, or some people criticize Abe, and a lot of people criticize our president. I don't think the fact that these leading democracies are having struggles means that they cannot and we cannot at the same time strengthen our hand uh, and the role we all play in our own ways in promoting and supporting good governance, good democracy. It's possible, you know, a lot of the debate sort of falls apart when people say, well, we're not so perfect. We don't have to, we've never been perfect. And as I think Dan said earlier, democracy is never perfected. It's a constant long-term struggle, two steps forward, one step back, sometimes two steps back. Mike, can I just say, we should also think about what democracy offers to post-colonial societies in Asia. Uh, And the answer is countries like India and Indonesia are better held together. Their sovereignty is more secure when minorities have a voice and a vote and representation, when political change can happen peacefully, when you can have federal devolved systems of power where far-flung regions are not ignored by the center, but in fact can do some self-government and local autonomy, right? The Chinese model of absolute centralization and total social control through Orwellian surveillance techniques, the social credit scores, all of these things, does not actually offer a practical model for other Asian countries, right? It's too brittle. Cambodia. It's too extreme. Uh, It's not going to last in a place like Cambodia because Cambodians Mm -hmm. don't want to live in that kind of society that is that regimented and that controlled. And so, you know, the true pluralism of these vast Asian countries Uh, is much better served through democratic practice. And democracy looks very different, and it's often incomplete in many of these countries. A lot of Chinese don't want to live in that AI, high-tech, surveillance state. What also has changed, I think, in 30 years, so people can say, oh, how much change has there really been? There's been all this regression. The expectations of societies now, populations, is that they have a voice. We demand a vote. We demand to be listened to. It's not something exceptional anymore. And that creates the resilience to the backsliding that we may see, whether it's a Duterte or it's in, you know, what Burma has been uh, seeking for, for so long. 
they expect this thing to continue to go forward. And they're looking for support from the outside so that they're not simply consigned to their own fate. In the history of American engagement in Asia, you know, as I was saying earlier, the Qing Empire and then the European empires collapsed. When we were on the side of national self-determination, we won. When we were not, and Vietnam's a good example, we lost. You know, from up until 1954, U.S. policy on Indochina was made in the Europe Bureau. We were on the wrong side of a powerful, and I would say healthy, nationalism in Asia, self-determination, self-help, economic improvement that the Japanese showed the region in the Meiji period. It's interesting, Alfred Thayer Mahan saw that and argued that our strategy in Asia has to support countries like Japan that want to be stronger and want to be stronger by reforming and modernizing. So there's, a, uh, there's an enduring principle there, an enduring strategy, and you guys are in the front lines putting it into practice. Derek Mitchell at the National Democratic Institute and Dan Twining at the International Republican Institute. Terrific being out here with you, with you in sunny lands, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.